0: Do you spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Plain It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? who doesn't play it safe. In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavioral science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. If we hold onto the frame that to be human is to be anxious, how does anxiety become a problem? How do you go from worry about not being good enough to chronic states of worry? How do you go from feeling uncomfortable taking the elevator to developing an elevator phobia? What maintains a psychological problem? And what are the skills, the core skills that you can learn to get back into your life? Hello everybody. This is Dr. Z, and I'm back with another episode of the Planet Safe Podcast. If you are listening to my voice, you may be wondering, why is she so excited? I'm super ultra duper excited. Because today, I am sharing with you a special interview I had with my mentor, Matthew McKay. I came to United States in 2001, and I brought with me two boxes of my favorite books. And one thing led to another. I ended up going to graduate school. I had this class called Case Conference in which you present cases and you layer specific interventions to deliver therapy. And every time I look at Professor McKay, I always thought that I knew him. I didn't know how come or what was the connection, but I always look at him and his face was very familiar to me. A year later, after my first year of graduate school, I was moving from one apartment onto another one, I was packing my things, and I noticed that two of the books that I brought with me from Bolivia were books that he wrote. I have been a fan of Dr. McKay's work for many, many, many years, and I feel very, very fortunate that today I see him as a mentor and as a long-life friend. One of the things that I very, very much appreciate and admire on Dr. McKay is his commitment to alleviate human struggle. Whether you are dealing with anxiety, sadness, interpersonal problems, relationship problems, phobias... Stress, or whether you are struggling, not knowing whether you stay in a relationship or you get out of it, whether you apply for a new job, or whether you change your career, Dr. McKay is fully committed to do the best he can to help you to have a purposeful life. This has been my experience of having him as a mentor, as a friend, and as a person that has shown me the way many times in which I was lost. And today, you will hear directly from Dr. McKay how he thinks of therapy, how he thinks of evidence-based skills that you can learn to target some of the most common struggles we face in our day-to-day life. If you have listened to the podcast, you may recall that a couple of months ago, I released an interview with Dr. David Barlow. Dr. David Barlow is a famous cognitive behavior therapist. And in that interview, I tried to understand how Dr. Barlow is thinking of transdiagnostic processes, mechanisms of action, or processes in general. Today, you will hear Dr. McKay's take on processes, If anxiety is part of our day-to-day life, if we hold onto the frame that to be human is to be anxious, how does anxiety become a problem? How do you go from worry about not being good enough to chronic states of worry? How do you go from feeling uncomfortable taking the elevator to developing an elevator phobia? What maintains a psychological problem? And what are the skills, the core skills that you can learn to get back into your life? So, in this conversation, you will hear what's a process, how a psychological problem becomes a problem, and what you can do about it. What are the core skills that you can learn? This is part one of my conversation with Dr. McKay, so please listen to it. Take a lot of notes because there is a lot of insights and I hope you find it helpful. And make sure to stay tuned because next week I am releasing part two of this conversation. I wish you a lovely week. Thank you for your consideration with my work and see you next week. Bye bye. I feel grateful that we had a chance to collaborate once on this topic. I was hoping that today we can chat and unpack a little bit about what is a process and why thinking of processes beyond diagnosis is important.
1: Well, I think the way we've thought about this is that there are change processes, processes that help people recover from psychological distress and difficulties. Um, And then there are what we call mechanisms that... Are believed to actually cause these difficulties, uh, these emotional uh, disturbances and and disorders. So there are mechanisms such as emotional avoidance, rumination, worry, um, situational avoidance, uh, misappraisals. These are all. Methods by which people cope with pain, people cope with stress. But unfortunately, these mechanisms, these methods of coping are maladaptive. They don't work. In fact, they make distress the worse and they are the source of uh, emotional disorders.
0: Let's say that a person is dealing with depression and fears of taking the elevator if you have to think of processes behind those struggles, what would you invite them to consider? Because they may say, I am depressed and I have an elevated phobia. But we're thinking something beyond that.
1: Yes, yeah, so uh, the, pro- the process, we call them mechanisms. Yep. Uh, and the mechanisms behind those struggles, the things that people do to cope with Stress and pain that actually make things worse. Those mechanisms for depression often involve uh, behavioral avoidance, uh, n- not engaging in life, w- withdrawing and pulling away from challenging behaviors, uh, pulling away from relationships, uh, pulling away from stress of all sorts and and this this withdrawal process we call behavioral avoidance mm-hmm. and is a major major uh, cause of of depression. There are other things that can affect depression. we can see a process called internalizing, which is blaming yourself you know there 's something wrong with me. why did I do that i 'm bad i 'm screwed up that, that that kind of internalizing in which we uh, identify our faults and failings and, uh, and get caught in a lot of rumination and thinking about it. That's another major mechanism in the, uh, that drives depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, uh, on the other hand, uh, a person who's depressed can have other things that they're struggling with. And you're, the, the example you're giving is somebody who's also got an elevator phobia. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so here we have a mechanism called situational avoidance, and another mechanism, safety behaviors. You know, so safety-seeking behavior. So, situational avoidance is is not ne- wanting to go near certain things that the client believes are distressing or dangerous, but are not really dangerous. But the cl- but but the client experiences them as dangerous, and so in situational avoidance, we avoid all these things and we never learn that they're not dangerous and we never learn that they can't hurt us. Um, and so situational avoidance is a very major part of, uh, anxiety disorders and what maintains them, but also safety seeking behaviors, which, uh, which involves, you know, taking refuge in things that, that help you not do, you know, to taking the stairs instead of the elevator is is a safety behavior. Um, uh, or or only, or only going up you know, two or three floors instead of all the way to the top. That, that, that's another example of, of a safety behavior. Or calling somebody for reassurance to make sure that uh, they think that it's okay and safe to go up in the elevator or having someone go up in the elevator with you. These are all safety-seeking behaviors uh, to help mitigate uh, the anxiety and the sense of threat. So both of those things, situational uh, avoidance, and and safety-seeking behaviors uh, are major uh, drivers and are usually implicated in anxiety disorder.
0: So for people listening to us, if they are dealing with a psychological struggle named depression or anxiety, the invitation here with this work is to go beyond that and look at what's the driver, what's the mechanism that is really the source of this struggle.
1: That's what that's exactly right. And it's what maintains the problem Mm -hmm. because anxiety, uh, in the face of elevators is maintained by situational avoidance and safety seeking behaviors. Uh, if, if we didn't do that, if we actually, you know, began to actually take the elevator and use the elevator, the anxiety would gradually disappear. Uh, and we would lose a lot of that Sense of distress, but more important than, than even the disappearing of anxiety, is is losing that sense that this is dangerous and threatening. Mm-hmm. Uh, we mm-hmm. learn that that this is not dangerous and threatening by actually engaging with it.
0: That's right. And if we can share with people a short definition of what is a mechanism of action or what is an ineffective mechanism of action, what would you say?
1: So people cope with distress things happen to us you know uh for example our our boss criticizes us at work and we start to feel uh sad about you know our performance and uh and so you know people try to cope with say that sadness or that feeling of like there's something wrong with my work and i, I, I feel, feeling uncomfortable and perhaps disappointed maybe even a a, a a temporary sense of failure so these are kind of painful things and and a mechanism or a, a maladaptive coping mechanism is a way of dealing with that stress that that temporary feeling of failure or sadness about being criticized by one's boss in a way that not only that, that maybe give you, gives you a little bit of temporary relief but mm-hmm. soon enough Uh, you're back in the emotional soup. In fact, things are even worse. These mechanisms are actually usually going to cause the problem to get worse. Uh, And so let me give you an example. So let's say in this case, uh, criticized at work, uh, Mm -hmm. uncomfortable feeling of failure. So how does a person cope? Well, they, they cope by ruminating about it thinking over and over again, well, what's wrong with me? Why and they try trying to fix themselves. Oh, well, why do I keep being, d- making these mistakes? What's wrong with me? And they, try- they had this idea that somehow if they keep ruminating about it, they're going to figure it out and they're, and they're going to fix themselves and they're, and they're never going to get criticized again and they're never going to feel that sense of failure again. So unfortunately, it's a maladaptive coping strategy because ruminating about it makes you more depressed, uh-huh. you feel like more of a failure. Uh, so instead of actually fixing anything or helping you cope with and, and, and somehow mitigate the sense of failing, it actually intensifies. Um, and, you know, and now, and then we talked about, you know, uh, behavioral avoidance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I now start avoiding challenges at work, or I start avoiding my boss. I don't want to see my boss because I don't want to even be rem- reminded of, of the, those critical comments uh on or that sense of failure and so now i have to avoid the boss i have to avoid maybe certain challenging tasks that the the boss has criticized my uh, performance Uh, and and so that unfortunately then results in an increased sense of incompetence and failure i'm i'm not i'm not I'm, i'm not doing very well and i'm having now i have a lot of anxiety What's my boss going to say to me next? Am I going to get fired? So not only do I have a sense of failure, but but I have anxiety and distress, and an increased level of uncertainty about what's going to happen to me because my performance is suffering. So again, these are all strategies that that we use to cope that kind of backfire on us. That not may give us brief or temporary relief, um, but the long term outcome is actually. Uh, pretty emotionally catastrophic.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that clarification of what is a coping mechanism and when it becomes ineffective. Um, I think this is such a rich and important clarification for our audience and for the listeners because many times we are struggling with all types of situations, whether that's anxiety, depression, or interpersonal struggles, and it's easy to get stuck on the label how this problem looks, which is important. But I think what you are suggesting is going beyond that and looking what keeps the problem going and what makes the problem worse. If it's okay, let me ask a little bit more. And I know this has been the result of many, many years of work. If people want to identify what are their ineffective ways of dealing with psychological struggles. How can they do that?
1: Well, there is um, a measure uh, that was developed to help identify 11 specific mechanisms, maladaptive coping mechanisms that we believe cause most emotional disorders. And that mechanism is called the Comprehensive Coping Inventory 55, uh, it's in the book, but it's also available free on the New Harbinger website, uh, www.newharbinger.com. And you, you can l- navigate to the Comprehensive Coping Inventory, and you can take it online. Um, so it's available. It's, it's it's in the public domain. It can be used, and it's, of course, it's been ba- it's based on years of re- research. It started with the research you yourself did, Patrice. <laughs> <about> the- <laughs> 2007. Uh, <laughs> blushing time, blushing time. We <laughs> developed the original comprehensive coping inventory and have been involved in a number of different iterations and uh, revisions since then. And this is the most recent one that um, was also developed with the help of Erica Poole. So it's a, it's mm-hmm. a researched metric that allows you to learn a lot about, anyone can learn a lot about how they cope with. With stress, and uh, if they have elevated scores on one or more of these coping mechanisms, these 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 ways of coping that don't work very well that make things mm-hmm. worse, there are very specific change processes, therapeutic processes, um, uh, psychological interventions. These are all change processes that can target these specific mechanisms and reduce the level in which you use them and increase the ways that you use positive coping. So, mm-hmm. uh, so there's lots we can do to change the use of these mechanisms that are making us feel really bad emotionally.
0: Mm-hmm. Will it be okay if, if we unpack one of these ineffective coping responses and maybe we chat about what would be the change process? Will that be okay?
1: Yeah, you too. Okay. You,
0: you know, I think maybe two, three weeks ago, I interview, I, I sent a survey to people that follow my work. There were three struggles that they all reported dealing with. One is self criticism. The other struggle was rumination, dwelling on mistakes they have done in the past, dwelling in things they have said or ways in which they behave in the past. And the other one was avoidance, avoidance of situations. What about we chat about rumination and ineffective coping response and how will that change process look for rumination?
1: Yeah, so... uh... It's interesting that you're you're all you're you're um distinguishing between internalizing which is sort of self-criticizing and rumination, yeah. which we, in which we think about a lot of things in the past that we did wrong or think about even things that right now has have happened that are are not going well and um and these are very closely allied yeah. uh, mechanisms but, um, internalizing is, is just constant self-criticism, it's mm-hmm. self-judgment. It's, it, and it's like, wh- whatever I do, I look at it very carefully and I evaluate it and I, and I, I am sort of always seeing what's wrong with it. Um, mm-hmm. What, you know, what's wrong with what I just did with what I just said? Uh, what's wrong with me, uh, as a person, what's wrong with me as an employee, what's wrong with me as a parent, as a, as a partner and so forth. So I'm, I'm looking at always what, what's not okay about me. So that's, uh, and there's a very strong um, drive to do this for a lot of folks because as I said, underlying that is the idea if I keep criticizing myself, I'm going to fix myself so I no longer have to feel shame and I no longer have to feel that there's something wrong with me. I'm going to perfect this, this flawed human that I am Uh, And so if I keep criticizing myself, eventually I will, I will make myself better. And what we're doing is doing exactly what parents do to their kids. Mm -hmm. Parents think that they're going to uh, socialize their children to be good people and effective people uh, and competent people by, by constantly criticizing them. And so we take on the same role internally. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and we think that we're going to fix ourselves so that we no longer feel shame, we no longer feel wrong, we no longer feel incompetent because we've, we've beaten ourselves into shape with all this self-criticism. So as we said before, that doesn't work. Um, <sighs> self-criticism or internalizing is a very powerful depressogenic in terms mm-hmm. of, uh, of what leads to uh, pro- profound and chronic sadness. But rumination, a little different, is also the case because rumination usually is an attempt to answer the question. Why, why is this happening? Why am I like this? Why did this just occur? Why did, why did this, you know, not work out? Um, And, um, and so it's, it's sort of creating a narrative, an explanation uh, of, of what's wrong. It's not just the criticism. It's like, Getting in and trying to figure out what's really, you know, wrong with me, or why did this happen, or why am I like this? Mm-hmm. Um, why did this person just decide not to um, have lunch with me? <laughs> and let me ruminate for that about that for a while and try to figure out all of, all of the things my mind can cook up to answer that question. And of course, the outcome of a lot of this this these why questions, this this quest to understand is, is to feel worse, to feel sad and and depressed. Uh, and we often, and the answers that we come up with are often wrong. They're, mm-hmm. they're often distorted, which is another mechanism, misappraisals. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
1: but even if they're right in, in continuing to, uh, to sort of, um, spin the narrative of of what's wrong, we, we end up deepening our sense of failure and depression. So, these are all. These mechanisms all have the combined effect of pulling down mood and and creating a, a deep sense of defectiveness. Mm-hmm. And 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 so it, they actually over time, you know, strengthen uh, what we call a schema. A schema is a, is a belief we have about ourselves, uh, as sort of an overarching idea about who we are and how we relate to others. And how we fit in the world. Um, and so, all of these, you know, the internalizing, the ruminating ends up creating a sense of, um, of unworthiness. Mm-hmm. Now, another thing that we do a lot, an- another pattern of negative thinking is worry. And, 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 and worry is a little different from rumination in the sense that rumination is all the answer, uh, the, the question is, why is this happening or why has this happened? why, 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 uh, and and usually finding negative reasons. Worry, on the other hand, is all future focused. It's what's going to happen. And worry uh, tries to solve the problem of uncertainty, mm-hmm. of not knowing by answering the question with catastrophic outcomes. Well, this horrible thing could happen and that horrible thing could happen. And I have to prepare for the, <clears throat> all of these terrible, terrible uh, catastrophic outcomes. And, and worry is is an attempt to, to handle or fix the problem of uncertainty by creating very negative, catastrophic scenarios that I have to sort of imagine coping with. Um, and so um, on one hand, it's an attempt to fix uncertainty. The other, uh, but what it does is create immense anxiety.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so it, it's a it's trying to fix a problem, but in doing so, it makes the problem worse.
0: That's right. It keeps us stuck in our head, right? We're just dwelling and dwelling, and then we feel exhausted and tired with all that rumination.
1: Yeah. So all of these mechanisms are an attempt to fix something, an attempt mm-hmm. to solve a problem, an attempt to deal with a certain kind of stress. Uh, remember the example we just had a moment ago, the stress of somebody being criticized by their boss at work. So, so, and then we rely on these mechanisms to try mm-hmm. to fix it and make us feel better even for a little moment. But the outcome is usually more anxiety, more depression, more uncertainty, more psychological pain.
0: Um, let's say that I have one of those moments of rumination, in which I am replaying in my mind, why did I say this? Why this happened to me? Why didn't I prepare better? How will the change process look? What will I need to do in those moments of the stuckness in which I'm managing my discomfort by ruminating about the past? What will I do? How will that look?
1: Yeah. So there are quite a few different change processes Mm -hmm. that we can uh, bring to bear on ruminative processes but uh ruminative mechanisms but uh, i i think one of the ones that uh, has been shown to be most effective is something called diffusion and diffusion is sort of changing our relationship to our thoughts uh it's not i'm going to get rid of this thought or i'm going to challenge this thought and prove it's wrong Uh, but rather diffusion is distancing from the thought and not taking it seriously. It's just a thought. It's just a product of my mind. I have 60,000 thoughts a day. I don't have to get too involved in this. I don't have to take it seriously. And diffusion as a change processes offers a number of kind of sub processes. You might say One, one, one is just recognizing a thought when it shows up, just being, you know, noticing, uh, a, a, a rumination when it starts. Um, another part of it is just labeling it. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm ruminating now, or I'm, I'm, I'm having the thought that, that, uh, you know, why why did I do such and such? Um, or I'm just having a self judgment thought. So we label it, uh, and in labeling it, we just start to distance from it. It's, it's a thought. It's not reality. Um, and then letting it go is a third part of diffusion. It's like we can, uh, and there are all kinds of ways of doing it. I can just take a breath. And as I expel the breath, I can just let that thought go and move on to the next thought. Uh, I can remind myself that it's just a thought or it's just a judgment. It's, 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 it's just an attempt to answer why, but I don't have to get involved in it. Um, and there are a lot of other techniques in, in again, these, these sub change processes, uh, under diffusion, but the main ones, which are, you know, recognizing labeling and letting go, uh, are very powerful. And we, and there, there are, there are, um, little exercises and, uh, techniques for doing all of that. And so it's a, it's a beautiful change process. Because people are going to continue to have these thoughts, but what's changing is not the thoughts, but their relationship to the thoughts. They're just not taking them seriously anymore.
0: One of the things that I get stuck sometimes when practicing the fusion is that I know this thought, my, my worry thought, why did I say this? Why did I behave this way? And I label it. I call it, this is Mrs. Worry showing up. But then as I try to reengage with what's happening in front of me, the worry thought pops up again, like a soundtrack in the back of my mind. And I know that a lot of my clients and a lot of people listening to us, they may get stuck when the worry thought pops up one after another one. What can they do in those moments?
1: Well, you know, these are, these are really great uh, opportunities to, to talk about different change processes. Um, one is, is something called uh, delay processes. So if I'm uh, if, so in, instead of um, worrying right now, I can actually set time aside tonight, from seven th- to seven thirty, to think about uh, these worries or to think about and, and ruminate and try to figure out why this or that is happening. And I can actually set time aside. Uh, and and these delay processes actually work for a lot of people. Uh, instead of worrying all day long or ruminating all day long, I've designated a, a very particular time period, uh, and I can even write notes down. Oh, I'm, I have to remember to worry about such and such, or to think about such and such, and I'll 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 consult those notes so I'm sure to really get, get this uh, this worrying in between seven yeah. and seven thirty tonight.
0: Um, I am smiling because in the past I have scheduled that in my talent worry time <laughs> <I> was built in because <laughs> I needed to deal in different way with my worry thoughts.
1: And, you know, uh, in some cases where a particular worry thought shows up over and over and over and over and over again, I mean, maybe a worry about health or worry about a, a particular uh, Situation or or outcome, you know, like a, I'm always worried I'm going to lose my job, or I'm always worried that some particular uh, painful event might happen. So, in situations where where it's a consistent worry, it's a particular thought, a particular catastrophe. We look at the pros and cons of that particular thought. What evidence do we have that supports that worry, and what evidence do we have? that suggests that that worry or that catastrophe isn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and we kind of examine that and then we come to a sort of a, a conclusion. You know, what level of risk is there? Can I live with this risk? What would I do if the worst thing happened? How would I cope? And so uh, we, we kind of restructure our relationship, not, not so much our relationship to the thought, but we, we sort of challenge the thought And we look at, again, evidence for and evidence against. And this is something we can do when the thoughts are repetitive, when when it's a particular worry that's showing up over and over.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just going to say that word. Professor, (laughs) can I get your permission to ask you two sassy questions?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Thank you, Professor. (laughs) So here are my two sassy questions. The first one is that the work of Francisco Ruiz and others are thinking of repetitive negative thinking as a way to capture rumination and worry, as a way to capture repetitive thoughts about the past and the future. But in the comprehensive copy inventory 55, there is a distinction of worry and rumination. Do you mind elaborating why? Why we have Two mechanisms of action. When there is other work suggesting that they belong to one single category, repetitive negative
1: thinking. Absolutely right. You know, there's a uh, there's been an, an awful lot of research showing that, for example, people who are anxious are often both uh, experiencing worry and rumination, mm-hmm. and that people who are depressed are often experiencing both worry and rumination. Uh, where we would expect mostly with depression to see rumination and where we, and we'd expect with anxiety to mostly see worry. So if they're both showing up, there's been a strong argument that maybe they're the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is you know some evidence that uh, would, would you know, bear that out. The reason why we separated them, is because they're oriented differently in time. Mm-hmm. Rumination is oriented toward the past, sometimes the present. You know, why am I feeling this? What's wrong with me? Uh, why did I do such and such? Why am I always you know engaging in these failures? What you know, what's going on? And so these these why questions primarily are focusing on the past and mm-hmm. and, and you know present moment. Whereas worry, as we talked about a few minutes ago is very much focused on uh, the future and on catastrophic possibilities. Now I think it's probably the same process, but but temporally, time-wise, the focus is different and people tend to recognize it as different. You know, people recognize worry as, as associated with anxiety and, and this sense of uncertainty about the future and, and the sense that it's bad and awful things could happen. And, and it's always kind of future-oriented, whereas the ruminators are, are really worried about uh, or thinking about uh, things that have happened or uh, are, are happening and trying to explain it and usually explaining it in terms of very negative outcomes. You know, this is happening because of this negative thing about me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I think that while they're probably the same process, they're typically recognized by people as... As associated with very different time frames, but also with different emotional states, worry more with anxiety and rumination more with depression. So that's why we separated them because people experience them as, as something different.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you're feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website on. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable playing it safe actions. See you soon.